so I was in the Las Vegas International Airport taking off my shoes and belt and performing security theater. Um, and we were putting it all into trays as it was going down. And the trays could only fit on the conveyor belt just the one way. Um, they could not fit the other way. Uh, um, now, here's the thing. The woman in front of me had no ability to figure yes. that out. <laughs> and she said, yes. she said the tray clattering down like uh, a Kimbo, the conveyor belt, knocking over shit, <laughs> jamming up the thing and just walked on by. And there was a man next to me who I'm not sure spoke any English, but I looked at this man and we sort of shrugged at each other in a way that was deeper than language, just sort of a, mm-hmm. a recognition of like, you saw that, right? And then the TSA <laughs> agent sadly, you know, twisted the tray in the other direction. So it fit in and the woman just kept walking. And I felt, I felt a sense of camaraderie with that man at that moment. And I appreciate his moral support in my time of need. So you know, you, like sir, my, yeah. Like, sometimes I think that my goal in life is to just encounter the day with that general level of obliviousness to things mm-hmm. around me. Like, how much happier I would be. Mm-hmm. But I can't. It would rule. Yeah. It would rule. It would be absolutely fucking awesome. Because, mm-hmm. like, that woman, that TSA agent, helped that woman. With, and the woman doesn't even know she was helped. Like, No! Yeah. Yeah. Like, you become so oblivious, you become a burden to others, and they help you, not out of, like, a benevolent sense, but just surely because it makes their own lives easier. Right. And so, like, pe- you're just being guided and lifted up by so many people who just, like, want to get rid of you and just yes. want to not be bothered by you. Yeah, and, down in yeah. the sand where there's yeah. only one set of footprints. That's where the TSA <laughs> agent was adjusting yes. your shoebox for you. Yes. Yeah. yes. May we all be oblivious burdens. Mm-hmm. All right, cheers to you. Hey, everybody, I'm Caleb. I'm Spencer. And this is The Mix 6, again gone virtual, again because of the plague. Oh, you, oh, you plague. You old so-and-so. Nasty son just, of a bitch. Oh, man. You just keep going, don't you? Just scamp with your different variants. Never, never get tired. Never, never grow old, plague. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, I, I've got one negative test under my belt, so let's hope there's more. But until yeah. then, I am locked in quarantine. And Burke's always been quarantined because he's in the zone. And he's been drifting here since the pandemic began. And we just come check on him sometimes yeah. when we're doing virtual recordings. So I've migrated from the Zoom zone to the Discord zone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he's become the ghost in all machines. Uh, but it's all in the cool zone. Which is where we all live. Yeah. <laughs> and and we, we are in need of zones because since we cannot record at Ross's, we cannot encounter the hot zone, which is, of course, where Ross places random items of food, and I mm-hmm. maybe do or don't eat them. I did have something ready. Uh, but Ooh, what was it? Well, no. Do you want me to spoil it, or like, do you want no, to you be surprised no. for next time? Yeah. Nope, save it. Yep. Yeah. Something to look forward to. Yeah. Maybe it's going to change. Maybe you'll never know what that one is. Is that what the last temptation of Christ is? Just something (laughs) to look forward to in Ross's hot zone. Yeah. Yeah, Hmm. Interesting. I always wondered. Now I know. (laughs) Um, Caleb, I don't believe we have any pre-party elements because 
Oh, Ross does. Whoa. Yeah. Ross, coming in hot. Uh, yeah, uh, I am actually going to be launching a Kickstarter soon, uh, for Leto Narrative Dissidents, uh, my tabletop role-playing game design critique, uh, limited podcast. It's a season, uh, so we're kickstarting season two, uh, so, uh, it's going to be launching, uh, Monday, July 18th, uh, so, and the kick pre-launch page on Kickstarter is already live, so if you like listening to me and Greg Stolze and James Wallace talk about tabletop role-playing games and really dive into like one game per episode or type of game mechanic per episode, we're doing that as a new type of episode for season two, uh, check that out. And there'll be episodes where, or uh, rewards where you can get a, uh, a bundle of our game uh, games or you can even curate an episode and make us review Cinnabar, for example, or... Uh, Invisible Sun, which would actually probably put it at a financial loss because of how expensive Invisible Sun is. So maybe don't do that game. Or do. I don't know. Uh, I can't really judge that anymore. Did you say <laughs> that you guys were reviewing Cinnabon? Because that sounds like Cinnabar. a food thing. No, that's... that's that, I that, got that, Cinnabon that. thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I would play a Cinnabon RPG. There may be a Cinnabon RPG. There's so many out there. But um, no, the, the, uh, the world of Cinnabar is a uh, world uh it's it's a it's a it's a game that exists uh but anyways uh check that out it'll be running for 30 days if you like tabletop rpg review podcasts a uh, season one is available for free and you can just listen to it and get a sense of what the podcast is like so yeah check that out boom adequate pre-party i mean i feel like that was a good yeah. pitch now they know mm-hmm. um <clears throat> for people yeah, who managed to find this podcast but not one of the other eight ross payton podcasts like there now is- you all know there's another one we do have a stretch goal for to do a zine, a PDF zine of uh, RPG. So I would write a one-page game uh, Cinnabon RPG if we do that. I I, I swear this. So <laughs> wow, I don't know if it's about. I don't know if it's Hydra. Yeah, choke one head with money, <laughs> just two more spread up in its place. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I don't know if it's about working at the Cinnabon or being the cinnamon buns at the Cinnabon, you know, like you a toy decide. story kind of thing. Yeah. Right. We see off the track. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, honestly, it's as good as it normally is. Let's not lie. Yeah, well, fair enough. Um, uh, okay. System? So there's our pre-party. As you know, if you've listened to this before, <laughs> we do have a rating system. We use that to rate our beers. And uh, uh, today our rating system is based on something I've been thinking about quite a bit lately, which is elements of a Barnes and Noble. I was recently mm. in a Barnes and Noble. I will tell you that I have like a strong affinity for Barnes and Noble. I understand the death of the independent bookstore sucks. We have an independent bookstore. I would like to support them. Sometimes I do. Sometimes it's hard. So occasionally I go to a Barnes and Noble. I also, not that I need to pre-defend myself here, but I have fond memories of growing up going to a Barnes and Noble with my grandmother. It was like a big deal for her to like take me or to Barnes and Noble and walk me around and get a book. Mm-hmm. And that was very nice. And so I still go to Barnes and Nobles. It's very comforting. But I've been thinking, uh, based on some interactions I had at my previous Barnes & Noble trip, Barnes & Noble is easy to ruin now as an adult. And so we're going to rate our beers and drinks today based on Barnes & Noble experiences. Oh, one, the worst element of a Barnes & Noble. I can only describe these people as the lurkers. Like the people who are at a Barnes & Noble and have pulled a book out, either the book they were looking for or not the book they were looking for, And they've decided that wherever they've pulled that book off the shelf is now where they're going to read an untold amount of that book. Your path be damned. And and it's unfortunate to me that that people don't realize that usually around every corner in Barnes & Noble, there's a a chair to sit in to do that Mm -hmm. very thing. 
but there are so many people who just get this wrong. I had to step over four people in a Barnes and Noble the other day looking for one book because they decided not just to pull those books out right there, but to sit on the floor in the aisle and peruse those books. It was like a college party, except like far less beer pong and it smelled better. Mm. Um, do not lurk in the aisles of a Barnes and Noble. You're ruining it for the rest of us. A two, something I realized deeply the last couple of times I've been at Barnes & Noble, and my guess is this has always been the case. It just feels worse now because I'm paying attention to it. Mm -hmm. Every new book in a Barnes & Noble looks the exact same. It is pretty fucking disgusting. Like, if you didn't try too hard to look at a book and just kind of looked at the panacea that is the books in front of you, you would be looking at the same book. It's, It's baffling. Are they still all like the pastel kind of yep. abstract shapes with whimsical font? Yep. Nice. Yep. With like cool. that whimsical, like uh, a paintbrush was kind of used to make this font, but a very fine <laughs> one. Uh, and I it's think, in white text. I think they looked at young adult covers and were like, mm-hmm. what if we were as mediocre and nondescript as that? And then, yeah. and then they did like the pastel and platonic shape thing. Yeah. And now the terrifying thing, it's bouncing back to where like, Young adult covers are now doing the Hank Green yep. pastel shape thing. <laughs> yep. And now it's just, it's all just, it's the platonic realm of shapes. Just, what, yeah. if, <laughs> what if everything just became a gray goo of homogeneity in design? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's what it's like to walk around a Barnes & Noble now. I actually had a thought the other day that maybe this is all like strategic subterfuge by way of big book. And it's <laughs> a way of counteracting the don't judge a book by its cover belief because in this world you cannot judge a book by its cover they are literally just going to be the they live white font with like book (laughs) yep uh readable maybe uh so nice yeah um anyways it sucks all books look the same uh in some ways like there's nothing more interesting to me anymore than like going to a half price books and finding killer like 1960s copies of books you were into because someone actually took the time and was paid a paltry amount of money to draw something cool for the cover that's oh, yeah. not the case anymore. Nope. Okay, now we're getting into the good stuff. Uh, things that are really, really positive elemental experiences at a Barnes & Noble. Uh, one, or three, I should say, is just the joy of interacting with a physical copy of books. Mm-hmm. Um, I am still not an e-reader. I do not use electronic devices to read. I have like a strong positive reaction to picking up a good book. And I get a lot of joy from picking up and kind of like rifling through pages of a certain quality and like uh, font that's laid out like really interestingly or in really pleasing mm-hmm. ways. There's something very appealing to me about the interaction of physical copy. And um, I just, I spend all of my day on screens. Uh, I'm sure a lot of us do. That's like my job. And to be able to pick something up and flip through it, especially when it's like appropriately weighted and it feels like the right size there's just something you can't that you cannot reproduce that feeling for me. Now, um, what about the other way where they send it to your house and you get to open the box and see if it has the Amazon Wave or not? Right, where it looks, which like is why I struggle to order the books. Yeah. Or, so, um, what about downloading a PDF and then finding it's too large for Kindle to handle and then yeah. not being able to read <laughs> yeah. it? So, uh, have you thought about that? Mentioned. It's funny you should mention the Amazon Wave, Caleb. The reason I was at Barnes & Noble the other day, (laughs) I finished Akira Volume 1, 
And I thought, boo, I love this. I'm going to go get Akira Volume 2 because this, these Akira Volumes are gorgeous. I was so excited. And the last oh, time yeah. I was there, Barnes & Noble had all of them. Barnes & Noble had every volume of Akira except for Volume 2. Yeah. So then I had to do the math in my head. Do I order this gorgeous book from Amazon and just pray to God that it shows up in reasonable shape? And I did it, and it worked. Um, wow. You put it in your shipping shop machine. Yeah, I know. All right, now we're getting into the good stuff. The four. The things that you really want out of a Barnes & Noble experience. The unexpected, but I sure hoped to find something I hadn't thought of. The Cure like, Volume 2? Yeah, uh, a Cure Volume 2 would have been really yeah. nice. You could have had <laughs> Volume 3 through whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, like the thing you didn't know you were looking for, or sometimes you just go to a bookstore and wander around and something just magically happens. Like there's not a greater moment in the universe than when you happen to find a book and it ends up being a good book. It's that unexpected, I came here for one thing, or I came here for nothing at all, and yet I'm leaving with this, this piece of literature that might be great, and it might be 60% of the books I read. Um, but that's okay, because like, that's pretty good math, and you're happy that you got to have that moment of discovery. Last, and this is a five, I don't care if it sounds weird, fuck you too, the most pleasant of exper- experience of a Barnes & Noble is the scent of a Barnes and Noble. If I could do anything with either the consistency or quality of the scent of a Barnes and Noble, I would be a billionaire. Uh, Every Barnes and Noble. Yes. Is like an older bookstore not better? Like it's book scent, right? Or do you like like new well, books new book plus scent chlorine? Is a lot different like, than yeah. like old books. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's a there's an important distinction. Older Barnes and Noble smells like half book, half pool. Like, yeah. Um, Maybe I like half book, half pool, though. Like, that's kind of the thing, because I kind of like pool. Um, uh, Older bookstores are a coin flip. Some smell like book and some smell like mildew and mold. Uh, Like, it's a 50-50 if I walk into like a used bookstore, if I'm going to start sneezing immediately. Mm -hmm. Barnes and Noble, there is no sneezing. That's probably the chlorine. But the scent (laughs) is always the same, and it is so relaxing and pleasant. Uh, And I... Every time it hits me in the nose, I'm like, hey, I'm at a Barnes & Noble, and I'm really happy about it. So a five is the smell of a Barnes & Noble. Is it the weirdest five I've ever had? It's probably not. I think it's maybe in the top oh, ten, and I'm good with that. Yeah. yeah. So with that, I'm going to get one of the terribly random hard seltzers I have in my fridge. Oh, I have beer. I found we'll, beer. I'm good. Great. I get a beer. Yeah. I'll, we'll I'll, see I'll, what's going to happen. Okay. We'll be right back. Spencer, what are you drinking? Well, we'll see. They call it a Vizzy, V-I-Z-Z-Y, hard seltzer. Hint of black cherry lime. Now, here's, here's something very important. Mm-hmm. It wants you to know prominently on the can with antioxidant and vitamin C. My first priority when I'm looking to get wrecked. 100%. You don't want to get oxidized. No. Nope. Mm-hmm. You, yeah. you want to avoid that oxidization. Fuck oxidants. Um, Look, times are hard. We should call these oxidants happen. Oh, that's a name. I mean, why? Why didn't they pick that name? Yeah, exactly. Lime compared to oxidants happen is yeah, uh, just a missed opportunity. Uh Anyways, there's our there's our free inervium segment. Exactly. Yeah, I was just thinking that. I'm gonna try this bullshit. Mm -hmm. 
He's sipping a Vizzy. I'm sure you're all very concerned. Oh, God. Mm. Um, that's weird. Uh, might be all the antioxidant. <laughs> um, I would say it tastes like if a bomb pop was starting to melt. Like if it was a little too hot and, mm. and kind of watery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hot and watery. That's nice. That's what you want to hear with a um, cool drink a, at the end of the day. Yeah, that's a two. Okay, it's not very good. I mean, I didn't expect it to be. Candidly, is it's it, better than I thought it was going to be. My impression is that, I, well, my guess, if I if I had to guess, it would be it is Lacroixish in its lack of flavor. No, or, opposite. Uh, okay, it has it has a different problem, which is it tastes synthetic. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. here's some, like, not great fizziness, and then, like, a little synthetic fizziness. sugariness on the back. Fizziness. Fizziness, excuse me. That's what we call that now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's in the fucking name. <laughs> um, okay, I'm going to put a two in the doc. Caleb, you shared um, an incredibly interesting video with us uh, a couple of weeks ago that relates to a very interesting and very large new game that you've acquired, and so I thought in dissecting our fun it would be interesting to talk about Blood on the Clock Tower, uh, and that kind of like really good exploration video that you shared regarding that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it was kind of funny. I, I backed this like literally lifetimes ago. Like I backed it like pre-COVID when I was still teaching. Uh, so when this thing arrived, I had A, forgotten I'd paid money for it. B, okay. um, it was like uh, it was like finding a time capsule from a dead version of yourself. Like, like not only not only did the social circle of the man who bought this probably never exist because we've never been into that kind of game around here in these parts. Um, it, just the wild optimism of thinking I'd ever be able to play it for somebody, and now like post COVID, just the ridiculousness of like. Before the absurdity was like I could get fifteen people together in a schedule to play like a social deduction game. Now the absurdity of it is like I know fifteen people. Like like I still have contact with that many human beings in my life. Yep. Um but uh I got it and I would have been reading through it because I was very interested in the mechanics, and I still am very interested in it as a social deduction game. Um, but I don't know when I'm ever going to be able to play it. So I thought what would be more interesting is having read it, I also watched, no pun included, YouTube video review of Blood on the Clock Tower. Very good. Um, at which point he does a very well-researched uh, dive into, like, why people don't like social deduction games. And I mm. thought the sort of thesis of that was interesting enough to talk about as people who typically don't like social deduction games and may be forced to play an enormous one with me one time if I can ever get into a room with you. Uh, I I promise so you probably I'm not. Every, don't worry. About I'll, I'll it. do it. everything that I own. I will play yeah. it with you at least one time. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's my commitment to you. Anything beyond that is you got me really drunk, which you know is definitely but, on the table. But mm-hmm. the way the host talked about how um, social role psychology is the reason that people don't like that, I thought. Spot on. I didn't know if that vibed with you because I know if we talked about disliking it before, but I never put it yeah. in those words. So yeah, no, um, you know, so we've talked quite a, at length about Tim Rogers, uh, for example, mm-hmm. and his video criticism and how like enlightening mm-hmm. and instructive I thought it was, and and how 
um, kind of smart in its approach to building a framework for criticism over time and then using that to explore a variety of different games and kind of iterate on that criticism. But that to me, some of that stuff wasn't so much about like hearing someone say something and, and me going, oh, yeah, it's that. I've never been able to, to say that articulately before, but it's that. Like Tim Rogers was about like giving me a new vocabulary for exploring video games and it was interesting yeah. and novel. It was additive to my vocabulary. Mm-hmm. No, the no pun included video was spot on in that a couple of the things that he was saying, which were, to your point, well-researched and based in interviews with game creators like the guy who created Mafia and the guy who created Werewolf, etc., but also in like social psychology, here's why these games actually have a strong negative effect on certain types of people. And as they start to unpack some of those elements and characteristics, that shit resonated hard with me and in, and in many deeper ways than I've ever thought about and or be able to articulate. And, and Lord knows we've tried. I mean, we've spent hours on this podcast complaining about social deduction games. And I think we've done a good job of talking around the things that we don't like about them. But this thing was just like clear, you know, no, one of the reasons that these things are unpopular among a certain group of people is that it it totally changes the dynamic of what you agreed, the social contract of game, which is we showed up to have a good time together, and now the implication is somebody in this room is going to fucking lie to me or I'm going to lie to someone else, and that's not a communal act. So first and foremost, it kind of violates part of the social contract thing. That's a much smarter way of saying stuff that you and I have just been kind of like drunkenly yelling at a microphone about for a while. <laughs> um, yeah, the the basic premise is that social role psychology means that you inherit parts of your personality by assuming or play acting social roles within a you know community dynamic. Um, and the principle of a social deduction game, of which the point is almost always lying and deceiving your fellow man is that uh the discomfort is that even when you pretend to be things that is how you become new things for real you know the mother night premise we must be careful what we pretend to be Uh Uh and even though that doesn't like make you a bad person it like for a certain amount of person it feels like becoming a bad person yes uh and that is a discomfort that the game can't really over Come and I found that was pretty interesting. Like um, in college, I read Heisinger, like Homo Ludens, you know, the man who, you know, the creature who plays, um, mm-hmm. and you know that kind of shit. And I think that vibes with it, you know, because play is how we um, begin to try on roles and uh, huh? sort of gain criticism and feedback for it as children. Um, and so that 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 explanation of the whole psychology of it. Um, made a lot of sense with me. For what it's worth, no pun included, this video does a very good job of explaining why um, the hyper-specific roles in Blood on the Crack Tower make it probably the best for that, um, because it is very much, um, since your role is so powerful, but also so limited amount of like doing what your character has to do, rather being like, I'm lying to you. So right. there's a level of abstraction in the logic puzzle that seems to make it less um, painful and uh, like diplomacy where you act, end up actually breaking friendships. Right. Less, um, less sociopathic. Yeah. Less sociopathic in that regard. Um, but again, I don't know because I haven't played it. And again, I don't know how I'm going to play it. The, I, the recommendation for a first game is seven to eight people um, in one room. Yeah, in this economy, uh, yeah, basically what I say every time I read all those the rule chairs. Book. Yeah, <laughs> I think you know. I want to. I want to call out one other element of the 
criticism, explanation, kind of call it what you want here. Um, I don't think it's just that that form of game uh, kind of breaks some of the social contract and makes it likely that, you know, at some point we don't try on roles in a real earnest sense. I, I think that something else that that video talks at length about, and I think pretty productively, is this idea that these games are n- not likely to, but instead are ripe for and encourage kind of like rhetorically aggressive, if not rhetorically violent acts. Like these are games that typically work best in terms of like winning the game or strategically manipulating the game by actively manipulating other people, if not downright bullying them uh, because of the like genuine discomfort and ambiguity that is the the, the tone of the group. And I will tell you that that's not something that I'd ever been able to like presently articulate, but absolutely that's something that I feel every time that I sat down for a social deduction game that in some small, some, some small way, I think I was actively waiting to find out who was going to be an asshole first. And it very much felt like sitting at a poker table, which is not something I really do anymore because I got very tired of like the stress of just like who at this table is going to commit an act of aggression at me first. And how am um, I going to respond to that? And the kind of like always on defense mechanism is not enjoyable. Yeah, what I found the blood on the clock tower does is when it doesn't abstract that to the logic puzzle, it kicks it over to um, an increased responsibility in the game's facilitator. Because if you are the storyteller and you are waking people up and running the logic puzzle, like there's a lot of mechanics that require you to lie to certain people or give like one false and one positive piece of information to people. Um, but there's also additional characters like travelers, which are, um, very difficult to kill and have a lot of power. So you can give that to someone who knew who's going to get overpowered. Like you give them the gunslinger so that the demon wants them to kill somebody that they're convinced is the demon and the townspeople want the gunslinger to kill the demon. And so they're sort of constantly being catered to rather than having to, um, shout over the den to defend themselves. And then there are also fabled characters, which are characters run by the um, storyteller. And one of them's just like the angel. Like, if the meek aren't allowed to talk as much, you can just kill people. Like, one of the things can be like, Dave talks too much. He's dead. The demon didn't kill him. I did. Because mm-hmm. uh, he said a really mean thing to Sharon. Like, <laughs> yeah, you could just, wow. it just has a lot of tools in there for being like, yeah. Um, social deduction games bring out problematic characteristics in people and you can talk to them and you should. And if they don't listen, kill them and get them out of the game. <laughs> I mean, I cannot um, tell you how like flatly refreshing I, I find that. I mean, yes. You know, uh, it, and, it and may then the, the mechanic problem. of, um, ghost votes is the other thing, because even if you are eliminated from game, uh, in blood of the clock tower, the genius is, is that you can still vote to kill people but you get one more vote for the rest of the game. So your ghost still talks, you still have debates, um, you still talk, you can still connive if you're in the bad team or in the good team, um, but you have one more, you know, you have a ghost bullet that you can use for revenge, um, and that seems to keep people engaged for longer as well. Also way better than Werewolf. Just fucking sit there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah. In theory, though, because again, how am I going to play this thing? Right. Could be better than Werewolf. That's our review of Blood on the Clock Tower. Mm-hmm. Maybe but anyway, better. I thought it was an interesting idea and probably the thing to watch that uh, explained what we did poorly for five years about why mm. we don't like social deduction games. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But did it take him five years to get there? I think that's important to ask out loud. We'll uh, write him no, and find out. No, it did, no, it did not. He did it <laughs> much better than us. Mm. Anyway, I need a drink. 
Uh, yeah, I so do know. Go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Caleb, what are you drinking? Uh, I am drinking from Liftbridge Brewing, the Farm Girl, a golden ale brewed with orange peel. Mm. And Burke to thank for this one. Uh, it has been in my crisper for months. Yeah, it's you've had really- a few of these mm-hmm. that you've accredited to me without any context, which is mm-hmm. that they were left over from an office party in Minneapolis. <laughs> yep. Thrown in my hotel room. A, a storied trunked year. down to Springfield. Trunked indeed. It ta- you can taste the <laughs> trunk. Um, the, the OG. <laughs> um, it's it's okay for being trunked from a Minneapolis office party. I'm not gonna lie. Like I, with that context and with it being a golden ale, um, mm. I think it has to be a three. It can't it cannot be anything. It's a golden ale. I mean, my God. My um, so yeah, uh, that's the joy of interacting with a physical copy of a book, I suppose. So, um, yeah, there's not much else to say about it. I get almost no orange, almost all golden ale. Uh, it's very foamy and frothy. Um, mm. but, um, yeah, it's okay. That's a three. That's arguably better than v- vomi or vrothy, which is what <laughs> I'm dealing with. <laughs> so think on that. Um, hey, we're into B-Hole-in-One, a segment we've not done for a minute, uh, and Friedrich suggested, what three bad media properties, which, candidly, is my cue to put on the docket so that I can hear Ross's take, what three <laughs> bad media properties, TV shows, movies, computer games, comics, would produce the best alcohol if thrown into the B-Hole? And I like this, because typically, we're not necessarily redeeming things in the mm-hmm. B-Hole. But this is really an opportunity to redeem, enhance, upgrade. And so I thought this would it's be really a fun... A we've come to serve its eldritch power. Now we're focusing exactly right. on outcomes. Exactly it doesn't right. matter one what we do to get there. We'll feed anything yeah. to it yeah. mm-hmm. to, to get what we need. Yeah, yeah. the beehole has one master. It's haywire, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, but we are, we are in its service. Mm-hmm. So anyways, I thought we could go around. Someone can name a bad media property, and then we can spitball... What what's the good alcohol it produces? Okay, um, okay. This is the one, I, the one came to my mind that I am real curious what everyone thinks what kind of alcohol this would produce, and that would be Riverdale. And I wish Noah were here to 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 give us the scholars. Uh, 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 opinion on this because he's the real expert it's, on riverdale it's not like, gonna be good it's gonna be like <laughs> i don't know it's gonna be wild like that's the thing like i actually have a take on this i don't think okay. it's good i think it's that screwball peanut butter whiskey uh, okay um, yeah yeah it's, it's like, like it's like candy and scotch or something it, it's yeah, yeah it's, it's a it's gimmick like, alcohol for sure yeah, yeah. Like you took yeah, Boone's a thing. Farm mixed with McKellen because it's actually 35 years old and pretending <laughs> to be that young. Right. Yeah. 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 Like you took a thing like whiskey, which uh-huh. in and of itself can be good. Uh, and then you were like, but what if, hear me out, what if we made it taste a little bit like peanut butter and then we actively marketed it as a thing that you mix with other shitty liquors <laughs> to make like a peanut butter and jelly or okay, a banana yeah. and peanut butter? Uh-huh. Uh, and Since, like, halfway through season one, about halfway through season one, Riverdale went from being, like, kind of horny teen drama to, like, how can we be horny and oddly supernatural and also referential and also other shows? 
and it feels like it was always built to get bolted onto, not unlike screwball whiskey. <laughs> and I do appreciate Caleb's point that it would be novel for being the first alcohol to lie about its age in reverse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. Okay, there's a Riverdale. Uh, name another bad media property. How are we determining... The, this is hard because... Like Ross, head is so full of bad media that how do you pick? Yeah, how do you pick? How do you pick just one? Do you recency bias it and pick one? Yeah, media? recency bias. Well, it's not really recency bias, but it's always in my head. And Caleb mm-hmm. knows as well as Deadly Lessons. Oh, man. Mm. Deadly Lessons. Think, I think that would be good. If you threw in Deadly Lessons, John Voigt's classic uh, film mm-hmm. of insane magic night school teachers. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, it's so fixated on chocolate bars as a film. I feel like you're going to get some sort of like Young's double chocolate porter out of mm-hmm. it. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. just because you want something that John Voigt can wetly smack in his lips in Ooh. every scene. Yeah. I want to be clear Boy. through all and, dialogue. Yeah. And it's chemically altered so that the chocolate hits you late, much like John Voigt throwing a child off a roof. <laughs> <laughs> truly something that uh, happens in that movie spencer yeah when i hear about this movie i something. get terrified yeah it, you have yeah. to see uh absolutely mm. it's that or some sort of meat-based beer for epicurean delights because that's oh, oh yeah. epicurean shit. delights that's, right, the, that's the name that's that is the name, the name right there. The, yeah. <laughs> that is the name yeah, yeah. Um, um best yeah. paired with rare steak uh yeah um, yeah, I think that I think that would make sense too because Deadly Lessons is all about um the decadence of things tasting and feeling good and how actually mm-hmm. you should read a book and change your entire life magically. <laughs> Just do that. Oh, it's real bad. Um everyone should watch it. Um mm-hmm. It's on TV. Yeah. Ooh, I have one. Uh what's okay. the name of it? Uh the the French Die Hard uh Christmas movie. What is it? Oh, Dial um Dial M for murder? No. Uh, no. no. <laughs> we watched it. The tiny French child was fighting the serial killer Santa. Deadly Claus. Games. Deadly Games. Like it's Deadly like Deadly, Deadly Lessons. So yeah. that's the bad movie I would throw in. It's about a French child that goes Rambo on a serial killer Santa that invades his house. This sounds great. It's a, it is absolutely it's... wonderful. Uh, but I'm curious what you think of French uh alcohol of of that nature would taste like burke and and ross and people who've seen it yeah would it be what would it be a, like a champagne like a like i mean a, I, I, I want a champagne, champagne of some sort like yeah so my uh, guess is if i'm the if i'm the serial killer santa santa claus yeah my guess is it tastes like tactical nuclear penguin like did not see that coming <laughs> yeah and now i am down for the count yeah, or like a very strong eggnog, like a like a spiked Ooh, eggnog, yeah. like Christmas with bite. Mm-hmm. Eggnog and sweet. It's champagne flavored eggnog. That's it. Like, oh yeah. god! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Not yeah. that you could ruin eggnog anymore, but pouring champagne <laughs> in it sure would. You think you'd get a curdle there? Like yeah. the would the reaction yeah. there be curdly? It could be. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't know. Um, I do know that there's actually a real world example of this, which is the uh, Game of Thrones. Uh, it made the fucking, what was it called? White Walker uh, whiskey, J- uh, Johnny Walker label. Uh, yeah. So oh, yeah. It's like a blended thing. Yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. Just, I got it. You throw Diablo Immortal in and you get Cristal out, something that's ridiculously overpriced. And Oh, yeah. 
It's Dan uh, Aykroyd's new vodka. Um, <laughs> yeah. I have to uh, tell you, read yeah. Diablo Immortal total aside, but but relevant for some listeners of the podcast who have followed uh, our long love affair with one, the Kevin Ellis. Kevin Ellis, after waiting four years, has uninstalled Diablo Immortal after one month, which yeah, wow. n- nary a greater uh, indictment of that game than Kevin Ellis is no longer willing to play it. That is like coming out with new heroin and like the worst addict you know, being like, nah, I'm good. Nah, I'm good. Act- I'm actually, I like the old stuff better. <laughs> I have standards, it turns out. They're very yeah. low. Yeah. No, actually, they, I think they, I'm going to get clean now. Uh, cool. Thanks to that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, got- anyway, we threw things into the b-hole and, and other things came out. That's how it works. The, okay, yeah. I do have one more. Let's you use. got another one. Okay. The the works just basically the works of Neil Brain. The re- five film retrospective of Neil Brain. Mm. I don't think that's one type of alcohol that comes out. That's a okay. that's the entire range Ooh, of human emotion. I mean, okay. Yeah, I mean well, that's that's every. I feel like Double Down is going to be different than uh, Fateful Findings. You know, like okay, okay, uh, I, they're completely so, different visions. Yeah. So he's a Neil Breen Oprah. There's a there's a breenery like a, instead of a brewery. It's a, it's a breenery. Like he he does a whole, but like a like different. Here's what I'm curious. Are you yeah. going to edit out that joke dying or is it going no. to stay in? That's <laughs> what, saying it. I'm that's what I want to know. I, I'm, I'm eager to hear this episode for that yeah. exact reason. That so. was, and I don't want to be hyperbolic, the worst <laughs> joke in the history of this show. <laughs> <laughs> and for six years, I have worked hard to tell bad jokes. Well, we the suspense is we killing did it. me. I got to see what comes next. So uh, we need another beer. <laughs> Moving on. Ross, what are you drinking? Uh, I am drinking Side Project Brewing's Fermier. Uh, this is their 2021 uh, vintage. This is a oak aged Missouri Sasson. Uh, it is got uh, it, it's a very fancy beer. It's very nice. I've had this since I December. believe it's pronounced Saison. Saison. Okay. Yeah, it's since it's Aeons. a Missouri. Saison. It's a Missouri Saison. Missouri. Saison. Missouri. Yeah. He's drinking it mm. like a bastard while we're not there. Just a real son of a bitch. Just a real son of a bitch. Yep. I had mentioned this like no fewer than like six times. I was before. being respectful. I, yep. I expected you to pull the pull the pull the cord, but no, know, I, I was like you. Yeah. Anyway, you never uh, touch another podcaster's side project. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sharing the, the 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 other half of this bottle with Maddie, so you know it's not going to waste. Uh, but yeah, this is a five. This is uh, as good as the saison can be uh even after like seven months in the fridge so uh well at least someone else other than me is also getting some (laughs) yeah i'll take comfort in that uh (laughs) thank you Uh, um anyway what are are we talking about here Spencer? um in kind of like a i don't know i guess this what's the segment that we call now caleb that comes about like the wild card segment what do we we have a thing for that yeah, apparently Russ has written the beer in the segment yeah. name. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, cool. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a, yeah, it's wild card. It used to be a card. segment until Ross wrote the beer name over it. Yeah. Now it's the side project for me. Air. Anyways, in wild card, <laughs> uh, Evan the wagon guy asks, "When do DIY projects fail?" 
And how can you prevent them from failing? Ah, uh, yes, Actually, our, frequent, our frequent home repair. Uh, I looked at the version history. There was nothing in the segment title. Oh, Spencer. Spencer yeah. has fallen down. Spencer has fallen. Yes. Nope. Yeah. I don't accept it. Nope. <laughs> you don't get to drink a side project and dunk on me. You don't get to be a rules guy and a Look side project. Look at the edit. Last edit was made seconds. Yeah. Fuck no. off, Ross. No. <laughs> uh, DIY man. projects. Talk about it, Jag. Yep. Our, our other popular segment, Notegate, where we argue <laughs> over show note. Yeah. I checked out the version history. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, must be nice. Anyways, I do have yeah. thoughts on this. So mm-hmm. we've talked about this in the past. Um, one of the, one of the lies of homeownership uh, mm. uh, is that uh, it's great and wonderful. In fact, what homeownership <laughs> is like an adventure in either paying people to do shit you can't do to your home or YouTubing things and praying to God it works. And as someone who has, fallen far on either side of that line at various times. One of the things I've learned re-DIY projects is know your limits. Like, they fail when you are too aspirational in what you think you will Mm -hmm. or can do. And I want to be clear. It's not always a question of skill or capability. It's a question of commitment. And if you don't agree with me, I will refer you to the workbench's worth of paint cans and wood and power tools sitting in my basement that were going to go to good use as I built a number of different things for my home when I bought this house seven years ago. <laughs> Am I incapable of painting? No. Maybe. Am I incapable <laughs> of... We're, we're of, never going to know, actually. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. Am I incapable of putting wood together in some format? Probably not, although my description of how wood goes together in this very moment might suggest I am. Also technically <laughs> unknowable. You would have to right. do it. It's first. just yeah. that I'm not going to do it, mm-hmm. and I've gotten good with that over time. Alternatively, there are some things that I know I can do because I've either done them or I've been realistic about my assessment to learn that thing via the internet and then implement what I've learned. So I would say the rule I would put in front of you is, one rule I would put in front of you, know your limits. Here's the other rule I'll put in front of you and then you, everybody else can weigh in. Um, be careful what you wish for. Uh, it's like the best way I would describe it, which is to say like, you don't really know what's behind that wall until you put a hammer through it. And (laughs) there's some bliss in that ignorance. So sure, you could maybe take a wall down and you could maybe move some stuff around, but you do not know what fucking Alice in Wonderland rabbit hole you're getting into until you put something through that wall. And it might not be the journey you thought you were going to be on. So in my case, for the most part, let sleeping dogs lie on those things uh, and hire professionals or don't fuck with it at all. Those are, those are two things that I think are important. Know your fucking limits. Be careful what you wish for. Yep. And I was largely agree. And I wasn't even thinking of DIY in terms of home ownership, but just any sort of hobby project, mm-hmm. any, anything you do. Yeah. Just be honest with yourself about why you want to do it. Because I think there's so much continual pressure to like build skills and be able to do everything and you gotta, you gotta spend all your free time learning how to do other things mm-hmm. to the point where you have no free time anymore. Right. Cause you're always doing things mm-hmm. and just figure out whether or not it's really worth it. Like, do you really want to build that skill set? Do you really want to spend that time on that? Or do you feel compelled to? 
Yes. Yes. That and good. I, I admittedly I was kind of stuck in the home project thing. Um I mean definitely qualifies. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, for sure, for sure. Yeah. I, I think uh the main thing is uh at a certain point you're gonna have like a history with DIY projects, both successful and unsuccessful. And think about like try and do an inventory of like what on the projects you actually did follow through on, like what, what was different than the ones that didn't follow through? Like, did you have more time? Was the motivation there? You know, like what change, what, what made you finish that project? Um, yeah, do a little yeah. postmortem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then because everyone has different motivators and you need to figure what yours are and what will actually get you to do it. For me, it's fear of like, Oh shit, I actually need to do this because I said I would and I have a deadline coming up, you know, like things like that. Like uh that helps a lot. So uh yeah, fear of uh, looking bad publicly. So yeah, just just basically t- just set yourself up for future pay. Uh <laughs> Um yeah, Dunning Dunning Kruger is what gets you here, right? Like you're you you overestimate your abilities. Yeah, like because you're um, not familiar with it, and like you haven't done it before. Like the way I try and compensate for that when I'm trying to learn something new mm-hmm. is I generally um, take whatever my estimate of the time and effort and material I'm going to need, and I add a significant portion to it. Like mm-hmm. if you've never built a birdhouse before, maybe buy some extra lumber so you're not too on the line for this. Maybe acknowledge that it's going to take a week instead of two days. Like maybe. Yeah, that I think that's generally how I've compensated in the past. Um, is yeah, the the general uh, measure twice, cut once kind of principle. Um, but also, I think if you over plan a little bit, um, you can stop the anxiety part of it. Which is, if you're talking about what stops a DIY project, I really think it is that. Aside from just being poorly considered up front, um, when things get frustrating and don't go according to the you know, first bulleted point wiki how list of how to do this said it was going to go. Um, it can be very easy to get discouraging because um, starting it probably costs you money or there's probably a deadline or there's probably um, something on the line which motivated you to do this in the first place. Um, and I think giving yourself a cushion to be like, no, nope, it's OK. Yep. This is a learning process. I was going to fuck it up. That's why I planned to fuck it up. And this is, yep. you know, something that if you can do that, I would recommend doing that. Um, otherwise, I would suggest renting for the rest of your life and being unable to functionally change the confines of your home. Uh, it has eliminated m- my failure of most DIY projects because I don't can't can't stop if you don't start. I do you think yeah. there's something important in what you said, though, Caleb, which is and, and Ross, I think this you were hinting at this. Mm-hmm. Um, on a lot of DIY projects, I think sometimes we get stuck in a mindset that like the only way out is through. And the reality is like, that's just not true. Like Burke, your note earlier about like, why did you choose to do this? And what were you trying to derive from it? Like if you've taken a thing on because you've chosen to, and that thing no longer brings you joy or, or scratches, whatever itch you were trying to reach, like it's okay to cut bait on shit and not have like guilt or shame or let that thing, kind of like, you know, put you into one of those like paralysis states where in your free time you think you should be working on it, but you don't want to work on it. Mm -hmm. So you're not doing anything except for having guilt and shame about not working on the thing you think you should be working on. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's okay to like put some shit away and go, maybe I'll get back to it. Maybe Mm -hmm. I won't like move the fuck on. 
The most important thing is you just got to be upfront with yourself because you don't want right. to find out you hate tiling after you've demoed right. your kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Um, hey, Evan, thanks so much for the question. Uh, on that, I'm going to go grab another random hard seltzer from my fridge. Why are they in there? Honestly, I couldn't tell you. Uh, but I'm going to grab one and we're going to see how bad it is. Spencer, what are you drinking? Sadly, that was the only Vizzy in my fridge. Fortunately, I did have a Truly. Mm-hmm. And I'm immediately becoming aware of the hard seltzer, big hard seltzer's need to use the E sound at the end of its its brand name. Do, do not care for that. And to have so this is in your home. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why it's in my home. Uh, it's a Truly Watermelon Cucumber margarita style hard seltzer i think margarita style means sounds real bad sour yeah yeah it just means limey citrusy yeah smells Uh, like hairspray yeah it smells like hairspray so the cheaper emulating chemicals yeah they put them all in one thing he's drinking it Ooh, that that was a, a pinch a pinch of the throat like a sort of a... I don't even know. Sort of making a catfish face? That's not... Um... <laughs> um... You gotta describe <laughs> it, buddy. That's I that's, know. That's, that's I all know, man. That's a- <laughs> not all of us have a fucking MFA, Caleb. Um, so... Yeah. It... Listen, it is liquid. I do want to okay. start there. Right. Um, and because it was in my fridge... It was cold. Mm-hmm. Um, past that, I'm a little not bit even, at a loss. I'm going to give it credit for that. <laughs> yeah. I'm I trying. Brought co- I brought the coldness. Yeah. I, I, hey, I know how these essay assignments go. Um, <laughs> so it definitely has like a little bit of like fake watermelon, and it definitely has a little bit of fake cucumber, and it definitely has a little bit of fake sugar. Um, and when you put all those together, it doesn't, it's not the worst thing I've ever tasted. It's just not good. Um, and I think that's where I was struggling. It's like, in some ways, if you told me you were giving me a margarita style, watermelon, cucumber, hard seltzer, I think in my head, this is the thing I would think you were giving me. Mm -hmm. Um, having said that, I wouldn't be happy about it. So it's a two. Okay. I don't want to drink. I don't want to drink it. I under, I do understand having had two of these things today. I understand why these things continue to dominate the market. Um, in the same way that I like drinking cucumber crush, like it doesn't taste like beer and then you're drunk. I mean, I totally, I get it in the same way that like Smirnoff ice was a big deal in 2002. Oh, um, I, I, I assumed it was because people assume they don't deserve better. Like <laughs> truly to me tastes like, well, yeah, no, we just talked about this is okay talk- for me. Yeah. No, no, no. Like, we just talked mm. about the oblivious people, like the people who go through life, like they, they, they mm-hmm. uh, Oh yeah. That woman too. definitely drinks a truly, a lot yeah. of trulys. She has a favorite truly flavor. Yeah, exactly. Truly oblivious. Mine is definitely black cherry. <laughs> Not that I would. Yeah. Like that. Anyway, in ask mix six, um, <laughs> Remy Keftu asks, I've quit my job as of last week and thrown myself out into the wilderness of RPG writing and the charity of Internet Strangers. Congratulations, Remy. That's cool. 
Uh, others have asked for actual practical advice before, which I would welcome. But my real question is, what joyous thing should I do first with my newfound freedom? It's my first time unemployed in nine years, and I have no clue what to do with myself. Hmm. All right, so I have a bad take. And Caleb, yeah. you've you've done this more recently than the rest of us. Uh, Ross, you have 10 years ahead of us on like jumping into the game, so I'd be curious if you can look back on this. So yeah. here's my bad take. Mm-hmm. If I were getting out of my lifestyle now and jumping into another one, and there was mm-hmm. this moment of nothing where I wasn't encumbered to another person or party or job or project or whatever, the thing I would do is absolutely nothing. Mm. I would take a few days and like wander around my house and maybe I'd go out if people went out and maybe I wouldn't and maybe I'd be okay sitting on my couch in sweatpants and maybe I wouldn't. I would make no grand designs. I would put no pressure on myself to maximize this time. I would do nothing. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's all I did. I had about a year of transitory unemployment when I decided I wasn't going to take any positions after my postdoc, but before I got around to applying for real jobs. Uh, and that was, that was like 2020. So peak pandemic. I think I just wandered around my house and, and read a lot, played a bunch of video mm-hmm. games. Right. And that was about it. And, and the reason, and maybe it was different for, for you, Burke, I don't, um, when you, and this is a bad way of saying this. So if someone can like, uh, wordsmith, but when you, um, start to lead an economic existence for yourself, which is to say you are now encumbered to yourself more than you are encumbered to another party for your academic economic subsistence, Mm -hmm. which is something that I've done for a while now, just in kind of a different format. Uh, the, there's never not pressure to be doing something, uh, Mm -hmm. to, to move that ball forward. And for me, I have had to more actively manage myself into and out of free time because of that. And, Sometimes, honestly, I do wake up and think, God, it would be nice just to work for someone else's company where mm-hmm. there was like a set schedule and very clear uh, standards for success. And then it was eight to five and then it wasn't. But I don't live that life anymore and I haven't lived that life for going on six years. And um, that kind of like always on pressure, uh, even when managed well, doesn't go away. And uh, it would be nice to have a couple of days where I didn't feel that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's the thing about being like self-employed is that there's you're your own boss and there's literally always something more you can be doing. You can always be doing more. Like even if you've done all the creative stuff you can do, you could do marketing, you can promote yourself, you can, you know, work on your skills. You can, there's, there's always more you can do. And uh, so the biggest thing is not burning out and, and being sick of it so much. So um yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. So that that so being having freedom, like, uh, yeah, don't just do what you want to do. Do something that will bring you joy in life, because that's going to be, yeah. yeah you're only on this earth for so much time anyway. So so do something that's going to make you happy. Uh, and I want to say this before yeah. Caleb jumps in, because I I think there's a risk. I know where he's going, and I I, I want to echo what I think his sentiment might be on some of this. It. Freedom, maybe, but you're just kind of trading some non-freedom or some freedom for some other type of freedom and non-freedom. And so 
I just I think it's important to say that out loud because just just because you're not working for other people now, I don't think means like the social pressure of the need to make money goes away. It just looks different. And it's important to accept that because it's not like you open your door tomorrow and suddenly like it's it's utopia. It's just it's different. And I think it can be really healthy different. And I it for me it was the path that made the most sense. But it is certainly not without its own pressures and stressors. They're just different. Sure. And I think the question uh, says my first, what should I do first with my newfound freedom? So it's really about dealing with that transitory period from going from working all the time into working for yourself. And in that mode, nothing is great. I mean, my, I mean, now is the time if you like, if there's something you've been wanting to do for a long time, and you haven't like a road trip or go on a long hike. Not now. Or, not yeah, now. yeah. No, I mean, well, <laughs> I it, it depends on the person. Like, if that person, sure, wants, of course. Yeah. So, um, or watching like every Godzilla movie ever made. You know. Uh, there you go. Yeah. Who would uh, do that though? Uh, I mean, I, only from the Hesse era onward. All right. Like, well, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't watch all the Showa era films. I mean, but, who the fuck would? <laughs> I mean that's that's for a separate marathon. Like, all right, like that's not. Um, anyway, uh, message guys. Yeah, <laughs> right on um, yeah. Obvious. And uh, in terms of practical advice, my thing would be like, uh, guy who does podcasts for a living says maybe you should do a podcast. Uh, like, I made I've made more way more money doing podcasts about RPGs than actual RPG writing. So uh, something to think about. Uh, there's there's more demand for that kind of stuff. I something think. to think I about. Mean, yeah, uh, there's more roads to monetize that than writing. Writing is tough. Um, if you want to do writing for a living, the easy, the easiest, and it's still not easy, is like romance and erotica because there's way more commercial demand for that that is easily sellable than like um, RPGs because RPGs sell slowly. Uh, I think Caleb would agree. Uh, yeah, I, I would say that... Um... You should do nothing. You should definitely have a dopamine reset. Um, you should definitely like sit with and think about the urge to stop doing nothing and like question that when it arises because that's something you're going to have to interrogate a lot mm-hmm. if you're keeping your own schedule. Um, that said, doing nothing puts you on a clock because everything puts you on a clock now because you have to feed yourself. Um, and if you're going to do it, it's going to require. Uh, discipline and regular schedules. And I, I think that's true of most people. I think it's especially true for people trying to start it now. Um, so I would say this, once your nothing time is over, maybe instead of immediately getting your head to the grindstone, um, your first task should be find something that isn't the thing that you used to do to escape to escape. Because mm-hmm. what your problem is, is if you're going to try and make money writing RPGs, Guess what? You don't have an outlet anymore. The outlet you had from the day job is gone. That's the day job now. Um, you need something else so that you can not go insane and burn out, like was talked about before. So take a martial arts course or like learn to uh, go to the gym or uh, join a book club or t- if try something you can get a regular schedule going with because it'll be nice to have your day built around more than sit at desk type words because yes. that's going to be the majority of it um if you're going to hack it out uh on the regular um and that's fine and that is a better than a lot of fucking jobs trust me uh, i am not complaining by any means um but it can get um your your humans thrive on variety you need something to alternate between just so you don't burn out that muscle 
Um, so maybe find that thing before you move on and get to the grind. That that could be, and it should be a fun thing, and it should be a thing that's a release, so it shouldn't be work work, but um, maybe find that thing and get a regular schedule of it so you have something to look forward to when you're not working anymore. Yeah, that's a really, really good note. I, especially over quarantine, uh, and we've talked about this a little bit, I was not honest with myself about how badly my time uh, had just become like this amorphous blob of same uh, and Mm -hmm. like what used to feel like hobbies weren't hobbies anymore. And so now everything just felt either like work or like nothing. And there wasn't really a lot of great distinction. And so Mm -hmm. picking up other things that I thought maybe I'd want to get into, but wasn't sure just as an act of variety uh, was so incredibly important. And a lot of those things have stuck, like I'm still doing it. Um, but I think that was as much about giving myself a break from the other stuff. Uh, and that, that's that's a good reason to get into things, too. Uh, I think, yeah, it's a really good note. So Yeah, so if you need a mission other than do nothing is find a new hobby because your old hobby is how you make money now. Yep. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, lo- I really like you. the phrase uh, dopamine reset, by the way. That's a really good way yeah. of putting it. Sorry. Yeah. The real thing. And good luck to Remy. And if there's anything we can do to be helpful on the podcast – including like, you know, boosting work or whatever that goes for everybody, I think in our discord, but, Mm -hmm. but certainly let us know. Um, so, uh, okay. We're going to grab more beer and we'll be right back. Caleb, what are you drinking? Pretty sure I've had this before, but again, hard times We're we're the larder is, no rules. Getting thin. Close to a thousand, baby. Uh, but this is Liftbridge Brewing Fireside Flannel Brown Ale. Um, don't know what I rated it last time, so you can test the the stability of the list uh, with this one. I like a good brown ale, but brown ales brown ales have a lot more volatility, I think, than like a golden ale, uh, for example. Like it's pretty thin as a brown ale. Mm-hmm. I could see past me giving it a two or a three. Probably going to give it a three because it's not very strong. The bitterness is so weak and it's so kind of watery that like it can't really be offensive. Like, mm. yeah, that said, it's not a very good brown ale, um, but it's not like bitter or or astringent as a brown can get sometimes if it's too old. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, it's just kind of thin and not there except for like, oh, I, there was a little malt. It, it was burned. It just went yeah. and it's gone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so three, just, just sort of a non-committal brown ale. Just right. not feeling it today. That beer um, is there. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I drank it. Okay. Well, uh, we're into living with humans and James Burns suggests, when did you realize that you were old? Was it a new pain in the morning? Was it once your significant other made a comment about your white hair? I was reading those as if there was a third option. There is not. I was just trying to create some suspense. <laughs> the gist here is what what monumental milestone made you wake up and go, oh, I'm old. I'm kind of curious where you guys are because like, I taught, so I felt old when I was yep. like... 24 like like the the second you enter a high school and see actual young people you start realizing that oh generational differences are different um and uh you so i didn't feel like old old and i guess i don't feel older than a lot of people i feel younger than a lot of people my age uh who have made different life choices and been forced into 
um, very, uh, I guess the term of the old millennial days would be adulting situations. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah. The examples seem to point towards feeling physically old, not mm-hmm. culturally old. Yes. Yes. Old. So here's, here's a physically old moment, a little more recent for me. And I felt physically old for years. Um, and I'm 36. Part of the reason I felt physically old for years is because I've been drinking like I was 50 for the last mm-hmm. 18 years. Um, <laughs> and so I think part of the problem there is just the way I've taken care of my body. Well, I know part of the problem is the way I've taken care of my body. But let, let me give you a more recent example. Um, Brandy is really into TikTok and has been for some time. And in fact, Brandy and Sarah, I think, have an entire relationship now where they just communicate by sending TikToks back and forth to each other. I find it. And then, of course, I'm guessing this happens to Caleb. It happens to me. Brandy will be like, hey, look at this TikTok Sarah Sarah sent me. So like part of 5% of my day is just seeing TikToks other people have seen and now want me to see. (laughs) Um, No, our our wives have joined into a corporate media mediated. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Which Um, a physically old feeling I've had more recently. Uh, TikTok is very loud and stresses me out. And <laughs> I have said that out loud now to my wife. Like the other day, I just had to say like, you have to, we, you have to put headphones on. Like that is it. The constant change. Everyone on TikTok is just yelling, uh, maybe comedically, but it's still yelling. And the speed with which it moves from one thing to the next honestly creates like a little anxiety in me. And we were sitting in the living room the other day, kind of doing our own things. And Brandy was watching TikTok. And I said to her, like, I love you so much. And also, like, I physically cannot hear that anymore. It's making it hard for me to focus. And it is raising my heart rate. That I feel very old saying TikTok is loud. Um, I, but I, I'm telling you right now, TikTok is loud. Like, that's all I can say about that. <laughs> Uh, I I meant, I meant the physical old thing too. Like, ha- have a high school kid challenge you to a game of one on one. Let's see sure. how. Let's see how fucking young you feel. <laughs> that's that's fair. <laughs> just how young people look. I noticed like undergrads yeah. and stuff on ITA. They're just like Jesus Christ, your babies. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, and, just, like, and the, and the other thing ITA. would be like the other thing as a high school teacher. Like when things got bad, you also found it the other way. It's like, oh wow, I weigh four hundred pounds more than you. Pretty much. Mm. <laughs> like I, you're like you're pretending to be tough like a big guy, but you're like. Like you weigh a hundred pounds soaking wet because you're a child. Like, so I, I felt that way old, but like for me recently has been recurrent, like re- recurring things. Like I tore my shoulder at the gym and I've torn that before in college and I've torn that before in high school. And like, as I'm like at a doctor explaining why it needs to be massaged this time, I'm just like, well, I'm just an old man with a busted fucking shoulder. Caleb is and literally breaking realize, down. And you just realize this isn't so much recurring as it is mm-hmm. continually devolving. Like yeah. it's every time it's a little worse than the last time. And like, th- that's me. So like, I guess for me, it's repetition is yeah. what makes me feel physically old. Mm-hmm. Like, cause mm-hmm. you can sort of feel the degradement. Yeah. I th- yeah. I-, I think, and I need that repetition to catch up with me because there are at points in my life where I've realized like, Oh, you don't really respond well to all nighters anymore. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like you can't just fucking, tear it up until five and then wake up at seven and go to class anymore. Like, no. It doesn't work. And I was like, I don't know how I ever did, but I did. No. Like, <laughs> Hangovers. Hangovers are a way that I felt old. Like, mm. like I'll go out. I have to, 
for the most part, I do not go out during the week anymore because if I have like three beers on a Tuesday night, Wednesday morning is tough for me. Mm -hmm. I'll just say in my 20s, I didn't fall asleep everywhere. I was drunk. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, uh, two things. One for me, it's like getting minor injuries from just doing normal things. Mm -hmm. uh, You know, just like, oh, I was washing the dishes and I brushed my hand against the potato peeler. and Now my hand's cut. All right, great. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, But the other thing is age is very relational because like, um, you know, there are times I feel like, yeah, I'm the oldest person in the room or whatever. But there's also times I feel... Ah, I'm the young guy because like I like you know I mentioned I'm doing this podcast with uh, Greg Stolze and James Wallace who are both you know years older than I am and every time I talk to them I'm like ha you know there there's a bit of me that's like I well, what, I, I yeah, I'm, Greg I'm practically to death he is yeah. my father in game design <laughs> yeah. the way he goes on about fucking kidney stones it is it yeah. is cartoonish <laughs> he's like an old prospector from like uh, he's like a Walter Brennan character just like it's amazing it is oh but god bless yeah hearing him right. talking like he's moving right now and like getting ready to move and just hearing about that like yeah like if you ever feel old just start hanging out with people that are just like even a couple years older than you are just like five ten years older you like you feel great uh or you'll feel better at least yeah uh, especially if oh, you hang around it, Ross, that's the key, right? Hey. Yeah, cultivate a fair well, group you, where you're going to be the young end. Yeah. You, yeah, mm-hmm. you, it's not just one person. You have to get like two or three people at least, so they can start having conversations about stuff that you like. Okay, yeah. Remember Columbo growing up? Is it you know like okay, mm-hmm. yep. All mm-hmm. right, uh, <laughs> good. You mean good conversations? Good yeah. conversations. I want to. I do remember Columbo growing Columbo? up, and yeah. I loved it. Yeah. yeah, I remember Columbo now. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I only uh, in, uh, encountered Columbo as an adult. I never, I didn't have it damn. growing up. So, oh, yeah. damn. Yeah, Columbo was a staple in my house growing up. Mm-hmm. I forget Thank sometimes God. you came from an underprivileged background. Columbo-less. <laughs> yeah, I was. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, yeah. Ross has been deprived his whole life, so he deserves <laughs> it. Yeah. yeah. Well, what what Ross yeah. missed in Columbo, he made up for in dead copperheads blown to bits in front of him. <laughs> Which is a pretty good trade, all things considered. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, hey, James, thanks so much for the question. Uh, speaking of being old and having a drink at 825 on a Monday night, Ross is going to get another beer and we'll be Woo! right back for Drunk Enough. Ross, what are you drinking? Torin Label, uh, Monk and Honey. It is a Belgian beer, 6.5%. It's a table beer, uh, Belgian-inspired table beer, balanced with sweetness and uh, light spice notes from the Belgian yeast, producing a unique tea and honey quality. We use local honey to give the beer a distinctly Midwestern uh, twist. Oh, 6.1%. So here we go. Sort of a thousands of year ago description. Just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Those Midwestern bees, man. Or the, they just do things differently. Of a beer. Yeah. I like what it's doing. It's just not doing it enough. Like, I can taste the honey. Um, and it's got a bit of a beery kind of multi flavor to it. The problem is it's just too watery. It's just like there's not, it's, if there's, like, I don't taste the spice at all. It's just, um, it's kind of disappointing. Like, uh, I'm going to give it a three, but if the flavor was more intense, this would be a four. 
or maybe is it disappointing five. because it's suggesting what it could be while not being that thing? That's exactly it. It's like I can, I can. It, there's hints of a like a really good flavor in there, but yeah. like it just kind of fades away quickly, and you don't really get. It's just, ah, it's just too watery. It, ah, yeah, very disappointing in that regard. But yeah. it's, I'm still going to finish it because it's, it, you know, like I, I would, I wouldn't turn a six pack of this down. But yeah, yeah. Well, we're I old. feel that we way need, about we need watery. We got to stay. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right, man. You're right. You're right. Even tasty grave like this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, hey, we're into Drunk Enough, and we don't always do listener suggestions for Drunk Enough, but we're going to do one for this Drunk Enough. Um, Stephen Lee, G-O-A-T, asks, Sometimes I feel like all my ideas are retreads and copies of something else when I'm trying to write or do something else creative. What do you think elevates an idea from a boring rehash to a creative reimagining? Mm-hmm. Writers? Well, um... I think the 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 thing you have to realize is every every piece of art comes from a context in history. Everything is made at a particular moment and place in culture and time. And therefore, even if you create something of a similar genre, you know, like a a you know a movie, a crime movie or whatever, um, when you make it, you you come from a different time and a different background than that original film, um, and so you're gonna have some, you're gonna say something differently. Because uh, you, you, it's like the, you can't w- walk in the same river twice. Um, it's going to reflect something different because you're a different person. You have something different. You have a different perspective. So, um, you know, I'm not saying this is like every remake of a, of a movie is good. But like, you know, I would love to see like a really, really great filmmakers today remaking something like Rashomon. You know, um, I think that premise could uh, be interesting. So. I think um, every piece of art winds up being unique because every person is unique, has a unique perspective. So there's that, if that helps. Um, I, I, helps. I, I, w- I, I would say that um, the, the difference between uh, a boring rehash versus a creative reimagining is solely in the eye of the reader. I would mm-hmm. also point out that you as the writer are a reader. And so at that point, you just have to accept the fact that, like, if it seems like a boring rehash, that's because there's something in it that you find to be a boring rehash. And you should probably figure out what that is and remove it. Um, and if it seems like a creative reimagining and you're happy with it, you're, you're probably on the right track. But the the non-helpful answer of that is that, like, the way you figure that out is it's sort of discovered in the execution. Um, but I, I will say this. It will not be original in the eyes of someone, and it will be the most original thing that someone has ever read. And that is true of the same piece of writing, like because it all depends on like what you've been exposed to before. Um, that's certainly been my, um, you know, my experience. I've had people like you know look at red markets and just roll their eyes like another zombie game. Blur. I've had people being like an economic horror game. How original and like it's the same text. Like it's the I did the mm-hmm. same stuff. <laughs> Tippity yeah. tap the same words. Like, um, but the thing is, is like the only judge that you can please is yourself, and that's the only one you should focus on pleasing. Because the second you start focusing on like, well, everyone must view it as a scintillating work of heartbreaking genius that has never been attempted before. Well, guess what? You're not going to write anything. Like yeah, you're, you're not going to write shit. 
<laughs> like, I'm not even saying it's going to fail to do that. It's not going to exist because, like, that is writer's block talking to you right there. That is an excuse to never start. Um, uh, yeah, so that's the thing. You only have to please that audience of one. Like, you're the only one you have to convince. It's not a rehash. Um, and when you when you realize that, that that's just the scale, it's a more manageable task, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think if you through execution, you will eventually find ways to be like, well, no, actually, I do kind of feel better about this take. Yeah. Uh, but it's discovering and writing. Yeah. I think if you feel like you have good taste, like maybe that's an unfair, like too, too ambiguous barometer. But if you feel like you have good taste or you feel like you have a good barometer for in, for for what you enjoy, making things or writing things that you enjoy is probably, to Caleb's point, the best measuring stick you've got. Uh, and, you know, I give you The Force Awakens as Exhibit A. Um, <laughs> I know plenty of people who think it's the best Star Wars film and enjoyed the shit out of it. I enjoyed the shit out of that movie. Uh, I know a lot of other people who very accurately and clearly clearly understand it as very literally a remake of A New Hope, and for that reason, it is untenable. Um, mm-hmm. It's the same text, man. And I think I think to Caleb's point about you know being in the eye of the beholder, um, if you write shit you like, um, even if it is a, a rehash or retread of other stories or other ideas in your voice, that doesn't make it bad, man. Um, makes it yours. Uh, a, a, a lot to, to my point about Barnes and Noble earlier, a lot of that store is full of the same story. Uh, mm-hmm. and many of those stories have the same fucking cover. Um, <laughs> but a lot of that shit is interesting to somebody because it's in a different enough voice or it speaks to a different enough reader or just a different enough person. And that's cool. That's how this all works. Yeah. And, uh, Burke, you did a, uh, short story writing thing recently over the course of the year, didn't you? Yeah. Last year from, like November 2020 to uh, November 2021, I did the Ray Bradbury short story challenge, which is like mm-hmm. write a short story a week for a year. So like, um, I feel stultified writing every day, but I definitely don't finish a thing every single week by any means. So like, how did yeah. you sort of handle that? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is, comes to terms with like defining what is a short story and what is finished. Mm-hmm. Um, which was largely for me, I think I just looked up like the Hugo definition of a short story and went with that, <laughs> which is like at least 3,500 or 7,500 words, something like mm-hmm. that. I think 3,500. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then I just, for me, it was much more about regiment than worrying about like the creativity of ideas. Cause the way I was feeling that year, it was just a lot of stuff about depression and whatnot. Um, a lot of just sci-fi rehashes. Um, I just didn't even think about whether or not it was original. I just thought mm-hmm. about whether or not it was something I wanted to write. And like, I also never thought anybody else would see it. Yeah. And, so, and that's, I mean, intention, something else to consider when you're thinking about rehash versus creative reimagining, I guess. But yeah. I, I think regiments, the way to get past it. That's certainly how I do it. Like if you're yeah. just typing, regardless, something original will come out eventually. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just, that's, it's not a great system, but boy, howdy, does it work? Um, yep. and, and yeah. I just finished, um, and it, it like, it was a pretty good book and don't get me wrong. I have my quibbles with it, but I just finished Anne Lamott's bird by bird. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah. That's like which, a seminal creative yeah. writing workshop text. Yeah. And I'd never read it before. And I was like, kind of, and, and a, a friend suggested it and then got it for me for my birthday. And, you know, I've talked at length about like aspirations of being a writer, et cetera. And so it's always nice to read books from writers about writing. 
And routinely what you will read there is like nothing about like wild strokes of inspiration or creativity. What you will read is like sit down and fucking write Mm -hmm. uh, and do it consistently and routinely and something's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and maybe what happens is you end up with words and that's what Mm -hmm. writing is. Uh, And it, it was, it was refreshing to read that again. Yeah, I think one thing that that people definitely get frustrated with, at least uh, I, I sort of realized from doing that challenge, is things probably feel more important than they are when you don't write very much because you're like, this is the only thing I've written in three months, so it's got to be good. Whereas, like, I just kind of write every week, and if this week sucks, then maybe next week won't suck. Mm-hmm. Like, what what one thing that also to keep in, in count is, uh, uh, or keep in mind is. The we we live in a particular we're sort of in this weird intersection of a culture and like technology in that um, we're, we have the library of Babel available to us. Right. Like we have easy access, uh, you know, searchable, indexable uh, databases of almost every piece of fiction ever conceived of like historical things are being scanned new text you can find there's people who tag and like sort all these things and so like you can describe any concept someone can go on uh, a search engine and like oh yeah it's like this m- movie from 1985 or it's like this novel from you know uh or whatever and that doesn't mean you shouldn't try and doing it you know it exists it someone had a similar idea to you once that doesn't mean it's not worth trying. Like, uh, you know, uh, we've had it, it's, it's like, it, like Caleb's talking about, like the audience, like the audience, you know, people, if you, if yeah. you didn't allow RPG writers to recreate the basic plot structure of Yojimbo, like if that mm. was like a punishable offense, no one would work in the industry. It would be, yeah. there'd be just tumbleweeds and Gen Con. We would all be in jail. Like, yeah. uh, like it's, it's, yeah. Like, I mean, you're, you're probably holding yourself to a higher standard than you will ever be held to. Like to be, <laughs> to be clear, like, yes, you do have that library of Babel as Ross describes it. Um, the other thing that is true is that three out of four people will not read a single book within that library, even once after graduating high school. <laughs> and if you got their attention at all, it's probably going to seem pretty damn original to them. Like, it's just, it, yeah, it's it's very much in the eyes of the beholder. I will mm-hmm. say, if you're concerned about this, that's already a good sign, because, like, once you're out of the Dunning-Kruger of, like, everything I say is original because it came from me, um, you're on the right track of, like, having some discernment, because, you know, mm-hmm. being able to see that you suck at something is the same thing you need to be good at something. Um, yeah, got to write that million words, get it out. Yeah, you're just, uh, you're just the only audience you have to please there. Because if you start gauging for like that invisible person's um, understanding of the genre, you're just going to constantly be moving that that uh, deck chair and never get around to actually doing the thing. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. And if I, don't, I mean, if you can't get out of your own head about it, as kindly as I can c- encourage you to find some people who will be kind but honest, like reader slash group writer friends mm-hmm. to pass work to. You trust their opinion. You think they'll give you good feedback. You don't think they'll be total assholes and and ruin your trajectory, but will also like tell you when something does sound a little bit too much like or isn't necessarily in line. Finding a writing partner or a small writing group of trusted people to pass Mm -hmm. work around occasionally can be a very useful tool. Yes, it's like a little bit raw and can be like a little uncomfortable at times. 
Mm-hmm. It's also the easiest way to get something out of your, to get your thoughts about your own work out of your head is to get your work in front of someone else and get their thoughts. And mm-hmm. it's not always a bad thing to do. Um, thanks so much for the question. I'm sure it's not as bad as you think it is. And if you don't know, ask, uh, Stephen Lee, G-O-A-T, as always, we appreciate you. Have you thought uh, hey, about you... having one side, like, want the hero to help them, and then the other side wants the hero to help them? And then the hero you thought about sides? a villain who thinks he's maybe right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, what if the villain got, what if the villain got captured on purpose, and it yeah. was actually okay. all part of his plan? That's what never if you, been done you go to this place, there's a castle, and underneath there's this uh, jail. What do they call them in castles? Uh, uh, a dragon. Yeah. A dun- uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you have to go room to room, and you get a choice of all the rooms. In branches. the dragon. You gotta go. It, yeah, there's like, it's like, it's like, it's like a maze, and, yeah. you gotta, and there's treasure, uh, and right. there's monsters. Like, right. It's a great idea. <laughs> okay, one, hear me out. Mm-hmm. Superman. Uh-huh. But he's mean. Oh, or, or it, no, or, that's hack. What if there's a cop <laughs> who is also an orc mm. who watches oh, Shrek? Now, tell me more. That's never been done before. Never okay. been done. Never. Yeah. Not well, once. what? Well, we got to add two on it. What if, oh, what if his partner's human and they don't like each other? Oh, man. That but they so got to work together yeah. or the bad guys will kill them. Like, I think yeah. you've really stumbled across a bright idea. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's just quit the podcast. He's just I bet that movie. I bet that movie would slap. Ooh, it's Will Smith. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, man. Hey, he slapped, he, he slapped he Chris Rock. You got, you got, you got a joke just as bad as mine. Good job. Yeah. Well, let's not. <laughs> the Breenery really. <laughs> Bottom of the barrel stuff, man. Mine's a stave, maybe. Uh, um, okay. Uh, we're going to end this, uh, not eloquently, apparently. Uh, listen, we appreciate your time, uh, and thanks for sitting through another Mix 6 virtual. We hope to be out of a quarantine period soon and back around Ross's table in the hot zone. But until then, we'll continue to produce content. If you've not liked us on all the social medias, be sure to do that. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't worry. There's like a hundred more on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com, look for the Mix 6 podcast, and boy, oh boy, will you find even more podcasts like this from the Mix 6. Big shout out to Burke from being here. Do either one of you want to plug Night Clerk Radio? Yeah, we uh, just did uh, an episode on Harath Records, uh, which is a record label by the vapor wave artist Cat System Corp. Uh, and it was a lot of fun and, uh, yeah, we, we recently did an episode on dungeon synth that wasn't about dungeons. It was like a Dune, a Dune album. Yeah. Really good Dune album. Really good uh, Dune album. Yeah. So. Oh, that uh, mushroom album slapped though. Mushroom, yeah, mushroom yeah. album. Really good yeah. too. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Very good. A dungeon. really, a really good and relatable pitch guys. Yeah. <laughs> hey, so. hey, you want to be original, make an album. Super accessible. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, mm-hmm. if they can't handle this, the show is no, it's not happening. <laughs> right, 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 right. Don't check out Night Clerk Radio. <laughs> uh, thanks so much for everything you do for us. We we hope everybody's staying healthy and safe out there. Good luck. Mm-hmm. Be safe. I don't know. What's a nice thing to say now to close conversations? Do it. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> Thank you.
I am so envious of that life. <laughs> the number of inanimate objects I've apologized to for bumping into them is so mm-hmm. high I cannot begin to count it. Not that I can't remember it, I cannot begin to count it. And here is this woman just being happy everywhere all of the time. I mean, there's there's a there's a line though. At a certain point, don't you become like a pea zombie? You're just like you lose all self awareness. Like, it's fine. You don't notice. All right. All right, you don't notice. True. Yeah, that's a good point. It's uh, it's the like um, casual everyday version of hospice. Everybody else is just taking care of you, and you you're just kind of drifting off. Like you know the TikTok where the person was doing like the child's blocks, like round peg, square hole, triangle peg, triangle, and just putting oh, the ball yeah. in the triangle. It was very much that in the form of luggage. Just no <laughs> triangle. <laughs> no this way. Yeah. Yeah. Good times. <laughs>